Today's Global IQ is with Louisa Lim. She was NPR's China correspondent based in both Beijing and Shanghai. In fact, she covered the Beijing Olympics. She's the author of a new book, The People's Republic of Amnesia. We began today's conversation. I asked her, is China's political system sustainable? Is China's political system sustainable? That's the big question, because this is a political system that is really an experiment in so many ways. You know, after Tiananmen, allowing economic liberalization without political reforms. And back in 1989, if you'd asked all the China experts then, how long will this last? I don't think many people could have imagined that it would have been so successful. You know, 25 years on, the world's second largest economy. But I think the fault lines that exist are growing bigger and bigger. We're seeing an awful lot of discontent 180,000 protests, mass protests in 2010, which was the last year for which figures were released. And I think a lot of those protests are the result of the political system, the fact that people have very limited political participation and no other outlets to express their grievances. And a lot of the things that they're protesting about are also rooted in this strange political system that has grown up, you know, the fact that now we're seeing a lot of environmental problems, which is uh, really from the runaway economic growth. Uh, we're seeing um, a lot of unhappiness at abuse of power, local corruption, land requisitions by government and party officials. So all of the discontent is bubbling away and is growing. Now, your book, The People's Republic of Amnesia, just recently was published. And I'm wondering, when you went and, and, and did the interviews, were the, were the people that you met with, were they somewhat reticent and, and were they concerned, really, about their own security? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, actually, I was very, very careful when I set out to write this book. I, I was nervous about touching a subject that is so very sensitive. So I took all kinds of precautions, and I don't know actually if they were necessary or not, but I never actually spoke about the book on the telephone or even in my own house or in my office because I was living in a diplomatic compound that I believed was bugged. And I never mentioned it in emails or any electronic communication. So often what I would do is I would bring up people and I'd say, I'm a journalist. I'm based in Beijing, I'd like to come and talk to you, but I would not tell them what I wanted to talk to them about until we were face-to-face. -face. And often we would meet in places like fast food restaurants, uh, dissidents uh, or people with quite sensitive opinions, they like to meet in places like that where you can leave uh, and arrive separately and where they, there's a lot of noise so people can't hear. Less chance of surveillance. Yeah, or at least you could see surveillance if it were happening. Um, and I wondered if people would perhaps not want to talk to me, but many of the people who I spoke to, once we started talking, they, they made the decision to talk, and then they were very open about it. And I really think that perhaps it's because 25 years has passed. And I think for many of these people, they had extraordinary stories to tell, and they realized they couldn't tell it themselves within China. And overseas, their stories weren't really being told. And I think for some people, they, they realize 
that perhaps perhaps this would be a chance for them to, to tell their stories. So the people who I spoke to, though they once they'd made the decision to talk to me, they weren't reticent, but it was a very difficult decision, I think, because you can never really tell what the consequences are going to be, especially the fact that I did the interviews last year and the book came out this year. The, there's well, likely to be a change in political so climate. So you disguised your names in your book? Some people's names I disguised, although everyone I spoke to gave me permission to use their names. But um, some people, I couldn't really disguise their names because their experiences were so unique and I didn't also want to self-censor myself. And once they had given me permission to use their names, it seemed that using their names was better because their experiences were so special. And if you had changed their names, then it would look as if they had something to hide when really they were, in almost all the cases, they were giving the interviews willingly and very openly. And in many cases, these are people who had spoken to the press on many on many occasions. I, I'm wondering, and, and, and I suspect that this was very difficult to do, but were you able to develop any tangible or statistical data about how many people at a certain age group or socioeconomic group uh, have an understanding of what happened 25 years ago? That is difficult to do. I mean, I tried my own very crude experiment, which was to take the picture that we know of as Tank Man, the young man standing in front of a column of tanks, blocking them with his body. I took that to uh, the campuses of four Beijing universities, and I asked 100 students if they could identify it. And of 100, only 15 students could identify it, knew what it was. So 85% of the young people that I spoke to uh, couldn't identify it. And I wondered if they, before I did this experiment, I wondered whether I'd be able to tell if people were lying. But it was really interesting that you could see there was actually a sort of tangible, visible, physical reaction. So if people knew what the picture were, often they would gasp or say, oh my God, or even shy away from it physically. Whilst those people who didn't recognize the picture, there was just blankness, no flicker of recognition whatsoever. Was there really a noticeable difference uh, this year as far as uh, how people were unable to find information on human uh, on the internet? Well, every year the uh, internet censorship is stepped up before the activity and you see um, all kinds of keywords being blocked on social media. But every year that list of words that is blocked gets longer and longer and all kinds of very um, innocuous words become blocked words. Like what, for instance? Today, tomorrow, that day, sensitive day, sensitive word. And this year they even blocked when spring turns to summer. Because people who are online who want to remember online, they try and bypass the censorship by finding code words in different ways of remembering. So then in turn, the government has to block those. So you have this sort of ever escalating spiral of censorship. But this year in particular, what we saw was not just the crackdown online, but also this crackdown on people trying to remember what happened. Mm -hmm. And in the past, commemoration in public was always something that could get you in trouble. But in, in the past, commemoration in private 
in private apartments behind closed doors was something that the government seemed to permit. But this year, that changed, and it's the first year that private commemoration appears to have been uh, punished. So we'll continue to have a lot to watch when we're listening to you on NPR. Louisa Lim, thank you so much for being our guest today on Global IQ Minute. And I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to uh, take a look at the People's Republic of Amnesia. Uh, Louisa just spoke at a, a group here for, with us in Fort Worth and sold a number of books. In fact, uh, several people who purchased the book said they wanted to be sure that their children and grandchildren read it because we in this country must not also forget what happened 25 years ago on June 3rd and 4th. Thank you so much. Thank you.